Thank you, brother. Please turn in your Bibles or your bulletins to Mark chapter 11. Our sermon text, as Jim mentioned, is Mark 11, 1 to 11. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem. And went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Please pray with me once more. Lord, I pray that in this time, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Do us good now by your spirit, through your word, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you go somewhere, the way you arrive reflects who you are. The people don't know this, but I once arrived as a tourist at Buckingham Palace about 15 minutes before the queen happened to arrive returning from what people think was a shopping trip, given that she was driving her own car. When I arrived, nothing happened. No one cared, and the gates remained closed. But when the queen arrived, the guards did their thing. The gates opened. Everyone was in a stir. They got their phones out. They were shouting, it's the queen, it's the queen. And everyone was making videos as she drove back from probably a shopping trip. Our arrivals show that the queen and I are really very different. Uh, the way you arrive also often reflects what it is that you've come to do. Uh, so you might arrive at the door of your neighbor's house with a dessert uh, and a present. Or you might arrive flustered and banging on the door and demanding to be let in. Or you might arrive secretly 
and quietly in the middle of the night. In each case, the way that you arrive suggests something about why you're there. Well, in our passage from Mark's gospel this morning, Mark has recorded for us the arrival of the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem. At this point, let me ask the AV team if we can project our map of Israel in Jesus' day. Uh, What we've seen as we've studied through Mark's gospel, remember, is that the first half of Mark's gospel, so from Mark chapter 1 verse 1, really to the middle of Mark chapter 8, records Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee in the northern part of Israel, especially around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, The first half of Mark's gospel, mostly up here, comes to a climax in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter says, you are the Christ. Oh, sorry. That concludes the first half of Mark's gospel, and that happens all the way up here in Caesarea Philippi. That's where Peter says, you are the Christ. Well, we've seen from the middle of chapter 8, so the beginning of the second half, really to the end of chapter 10, which we covered for the past two weeks, Mark records Jesus' journey on the way. Remember, that was the key phrase in Mark 8 to 10. On the way from up here in Caesarea Philippi through Galilee down all the way to Jerusalem. You may remember last week's passage or the passage two weeks ago ended uh, with the healing of a blind man in Jericho. Jericho is about 15 miles to the east of Jerusalem. And this morning we'll see that Jesus passes through two towns called Bethany and Bethphage, which are about two miles outside of Jerusalem, too close to them to show them on this map. Uh, And of course, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Thank you very much. You can take the map down. Well, what we see in our text this morning is that the manner of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem says a lot about him. It says a lot about what he has come to do. So in our time together in God's Word this morning, I want us to see three truths about Jesus revealed in his arrival in Jerusalem. I'll mention those three truths to you as we walk through the text. So the first thing that we see in Jesus' arrival, first point in the sermon this morning is that Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. I've just said our passage opens as Jesus and his disciples approach Bethphage and Bethany, which again are two-ish miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, These events are taking place either on the Sunday or the Monday before Good Friday. Uh, So in coming Sundays, God willing, we'll see that Jesus uses Bethany as sort of a home base uh, to sleep and to commute to Jerusalem during this final week before his crucifixion. So there in verse 1, we read that before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he sends two of his disciples into a nearby village. And Jesus gives these disciples very specific instructions. Jesus says, enter the village in front of you. Immediately as you enter, you will find a colt. It will be tied. Untie the colt. Bring it to me. If someone asks you what you're doing, here is exactly what to say, and they'll let you have it. Then, in verses 4 to 6, 
everything happens exactly as Jesus said that it would. The two disciples enter the village in front of them. They find a colt. The colt is tied. They untie the colt. They begin to bring it to Jesus. Someone asks them, what are you doing untying the colt? They tell them what Jesus had told them to say, and the questioner is satisfied. It all happens exactly as Jesus had said that it would. Now, commentators wonder about whether Jesus' foreknowledge in this instance is the result of planning, because we know that he had friends in Bethany, uh, Lazarus in particular, uh, or whether it's the result of prophetic foresight. Uh, Does Jesus know these things because he's the Son of God, filled with the Spirit of God? It seems to me that Mark is suggesting that Jesus knows what's going to happen supernaturally. That seems to be why Mark highlights the exact correspondence between what Jesus says will happen and what happens. Three verses of Jesus' words, three verses of perfect correspondence to Jesus' words. But whether this is the result of planning or of prophecy... What's clearly true in these verses is that Mark is presenting Jesus as the one in control. Things in this passage unfold according to Jesus' plans and at his bidding. God willing, this is something we'll see again and again as we walk through these last few chapters of Mark's gospel. Throughout this final week of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection, Mark consistently presents Jesus as the one in control. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard or sets him off balance. He is the one behind the wheel. His actions drive the plot. His plans govern the drama. Now, here's one reason why Mark would want his readers to understand this, especially about the last week of Jesus' life. When Mark's gospel was written, most Christians were, or Christians rather, were a tiny minority within the Roman Empire. Most of them were slaves or members of the lower classes. And Christians were regularly persecuted both by the Jews and by the Roman authorities, sometimes unto death. The Christians were ostracized by their pagan neighbors for following Jesus. And Christians were known as the people whose Savior had been publicly disgraced and killed by the government. So you can see why Mark's audience might have been tempted to feel at times that they were on the losing team. As Rome's iron grip on Christians grew tighter and tighter, as it grew harder and harder to be a Christian, Mark's listeners would have been tempted to doubt that Jesus really is Lord, that it's a wise decision to cast my lot in with Jesus uh, rather than with the society and the powerful government around me. After all, Rome managed to kill Jesus, didn't they? Are we siding with a loser in being Christians? Mark 
Mark's audience would have felt how foolish it seemed to entrust their eternal well-being to a man who got crucified. And so, Mark wants to make it abundantly clear that in the last week of his life, Jesus did not get caught up in something that spiraled out of control. Jesus is being highly deliberate at every step. He is marching with eyes wide open into Jerusalem in control. Jesus comes deliberately to die the death that he's predicted three times now that he must die to ransom many from their sins. And as we'll see in coming weeks, God willing, uh, the attention that Jesus draws through this very public donkey ride into Jerusalem, the attention that Jesus gets from doing what he does in this passage uh, throws major gas on the fire that eventually culminates in Jesus' death. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus is in control during Passion Week. This is how Jesus puts it in John chapter 10, verse 18. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Mark is pointing out now on Sunday or Monday that Jesus is in control so that on Friday, when we see him on the cross, that we don't lose faith. Brothers and sisters, you see how this applies to our lives, don't you? As Christians, we know that God loves us. And as he says in Romans chapter 8, that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. But sometimes it appears to us that our loving God and Father is not in control. Sometimes our circumstances appear to us to be a giant argument that God does not work all things together for the good of his people because how could this possibly be for the good of this one of his people? There are times when things seem to us to be out of control. But brothers and sisters, listen, Jesus is in control. And everything that he says comes to pass. In our passage, it's a small example, but Jesus says, there will be a donkey, it will be tied, here is what to say. And every step of it comes to pass. In coming chapters, we'll see that Jesus has said, I must suffer, I must die, I must rise. And all of it comes to pass. Brothers and sisters, this is what else Jesus has said to us. He said in John's gospel, in the world, you will have trouble. And brothers and sisters, it's come to pass, hasn't it? We have trouble. It is as Jesus said. But saints, this is how that verse ends. Jesus says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Christians, this is what else Jesus says to us. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A Christian, listen, it will come to pass as Jesus has said. He will be with you. 
always. This is what else Jesus has said. He said, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Brothers and sisters, it will come to pass as Jesus has said. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And we know that it's true because he is in control. See, riding into Jerusalem, the king who is in control. That's our first point this morning. First truth we see about Jesus from his arrival. Our second point is that Jesus' arrival reveals that he is the prophesied king. Point number two, Jesus is the prophesied king. We're told there in verse seven that after this donkey cult is obtained, uh, the other gospels tell us that this is a donkey cult specifically or a baby donkey, uh, the disciples give their cloaks to this animal for a makeshift saddle. And Jesus rides this baby donkey on the final stretch into Jerusalem. Now, that's very interesting because Jesus is making this journey into Jerusalem just as many others are flocking to Jerusalem for Passover week. And we have historical indications that it was traditional to walk into Jerusalem. That appears to have been the traditional Jewish thing to do, to walk into Jerusalem as you come for Passover week. So it would have been conspicuous, if that's correct, that Jesus comes riding on a donkey. Imagine a sea of people moving towards Jerusalem, and one of them is taller than the rest because he's on a donkey. Draws attention to the rider. By the way, did you notice how much airtime Mark gives to this donkey colt in our short passage? It's 11 verses, and the first six verses are about the plan to get the donkey. The colt is mentioned four times in our passage. Mark is drawing our attention to this animal for a reason. Uh, again, it's an allusion to Old Testament texts. Uh, so some have seen here an allusion to Jacob's prophecy uh, to Judah, his son, in Genesis chapter 49. By the way, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Jacob pictures Judah as a ruler to whom the obedience of his brothers and the obedience of all the nations belongs uh, and he describes Judah as riding on a donkey colt. Uh, this donkey ride also reminds us of the coronation of Solomon. By the way, who is Solomon? Oh, he's the son of King David. In 1 Kings chapter 1, Solomon rides David's own mule outside of Jerusalem to be anointed as king. But the clearest Old Testament allusion here is one which Matthew in his gospel, who's probably writing after Mark, makes explicit. Uh, so we read this in Matthew's account of the same events. Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. Speaking of this donkey ride, Matthew says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, the prophet Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. 
And Matthew is quoting Zechariah 9 there, where the prophet predicts the coming of the Messiah, the promised king, who is going to speak peace to all the nations. And so the gospel writers emphasize this donkey because they want us to see once again that Jesus is fulfilling God's Old Testament plans. Jesus is God's prophesied king. He is the Christ. And that's clearly how the crowd who are traveling with Jesus understand this donkey ride. Uh, Verse 8 says that the people spread their cloaks on the road. That would have been a personally costly thing to do, an inconvenient thing to do to get your your cloak all dusty like that. Not something you would do except perhaps for a king. The people spread leafy branches, which John tells us are palm branches, as celebratory decorations. And there in verses 9 and 10, we read this. Mark says, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna literally means God save. God save. They're celebrating that Jesus has come to save. And quite clearly they're alluding to the passage which Brent and we read responsively. Psalm 118. As Brent mentioned, Psalm 118 is such an interesting psalm. It appears to have been composed as a call and response song uh, to be sung by Israel as the king proceeded into the temple after being saved by God. So parts of the psalm, as we saw, are to be sung by the people. We'll see in a moment. Parts of the psalm are to be sung by the priests. And parts of the psalm seem to be sung by the king himself. So here's the section. Look in your bulletins at Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. There in verse 25, we read, Save us! In Hebrew, that is, Hoshiana! Hosanna. It's clearly an allusion to this psalm. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. About the king proceeding into the temple, these people sing this. So when the crowd accompanying Jesus' donkey ride sings, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the coming kingdom of our father David, nothing could be clearer than that they are saying that Jesus is the prophesied king. Now, what should we think about this crowd? Does this crowd get it right as they sing Hosanna while Jesus rides into Jerusalem. There is a famous line that often gets repeated on Palm Sunday that goes something like this. This fickle crowd shouting Hosanna today will soon cry out, crucify him a few days later. But I don't think that that's actually correct. I think the Bible shows us that this crowd is not the same crowd that crucifies Jesus. If you have your Bibles, look back at Mark chapter 10, there in verse 46. Notice who this crowd is. Look at Mark 10, 46. It says there, and they, Jesus and his disciples, came to Jericho. Remember, 15 miles outside Jerusalem. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and 
a great crowd. In chapter 10, verse 46, has Jesus come to Jerusalem yet? No, but he is accompanied by a great crowd coming with him into Jerusalem. The crowd who celebrate Jesus in our passage is not yet in Jerusalem. They're traveling with Jesus. Mark specifically says it's those who went before and those who followed him. We need to see, this is so important, the crowd chanting Hosanna is not a welcoming committee in Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem until verse 11. The crowd are those who have come with Jesus for Passover week. In fact, Luke's gospel says this specifically about those who are shouting Hosanna. This is from Luke 19. Luke writes, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's not correct to identify this crowd coming into Jerusalem from outside as exactly the same as the crowd who crucify Jesus on Good Friday. Perhaps some of the same members, but not identical. This crowd is not a Jerusalem crowd, and we need to see that. And yet it does seem that for all this crowd's celebration of Jesus, their understanding is at least partially mistaken. We've seen this throughout Mark chapters 8 to 10. When this crowd sings, Hosanna, or save us, as they celebrate the coming kingdom of our father David, almost certainly they are thinking that Jesus will defeat the Romans. They want Jesus to save them from their current political enemies. Almost certainly they are celebrating Jesus as a human political savior. We've seen in prior weeks, haven't we, that not even the 12 disciples have yet understood that Jesus has come to suffer and die to save from sin and not yet to conquer and rule and save from human enemies. Jesus has come to bring the kingdom. But as Jesus says to Pilate in John's gospel, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus has come to deliver God's people, not from the Romans, but from sin and death and eternal judgment. We saw last week that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. And if this crowd shouting Hosanna are going to follow Jesus for the long haul, uh, they're going to need to shift their paradigm about what it means for Jesus to be the prophesied king. In other words, they will need to see Jesus as the prophesied king who carries out God's plan on God's timeline. Friends, I think there is a lesson here for us too. There is a danger that we might build our excitement about Jesus on the hope that Jesus will do what we want here and now. There is a danger that we too want to celebrate primarily a Savior who saves us from the Romans here and now, whatever the Romans might be in your life. 
And so the value of Jesus might become to us that he gives us the circumstances or the job or the family or the health or the feelings or the success or the approval that we want. But as Mark's gospel unfolds, it's very clear Jesus is not the fantasy genie king. He is the prophesied king. Now listen, please don't mishear me. It's good, it's right that we would ask Jesus to help us in every sphere of our lives. Everything good that we have is a kind gift from Jesus. And when we suffer, it is right that we would ask King Jesus to help us, to deliver us in this life. But it's also important to remember that King Jesus' agenda, God's prophesied plans, are much bigger, and brothers and sisters, much better than our plans. Jesus does not want us to settle for a perfectly cozy home on earth. He wants to give us the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus doesn't want us to cruise through an easy life. Jesus wants to teach us to have true life in communion with him and his father. Jesus doesn't want the muscles of our character to atrophy through laziness and only comfort all the time. Jesus wants to strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being so that we may know how great his love is, so that we might become like him. Jesus doesn't want to be a genie who grants every foolish and destructive wish that we have. Jesus wants to teach us to be wise. And he wants to teach us to want him. Saints, if you've ever met anyone who always gets exactly what they want, then you'll be able to see why it's wonderful news that Jesus is not the fantasy genie king. He is the prophesied king. The king who makes good on God's perfect plans, in God's time, in God's way. May God teach us to celebrate the Jesus who is, and not the lesser Jesus we imagine for ourselves. Jesus' arrival reveals to us, first, that he's in control, and second, that he is the prophesied king. Third and finally, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem reveals that he demands a response. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem reveals that he demands a response. As we've studied through Mark's gospel, we have seen that this is not the first time that Jerusalem has noticed Jesus. Remember, Mark's recorded most of Jesus' time up in Galilee, but Jerusalem has noticed what he's been doing. All the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 8, we see that during the heyday of Jesus' healing ministry up in Galilee, there are people from Jerusalem a hundred miles south who make the trek to Jesus to be healed by him, to hear what he has to say. Don't you know that those people went back home to Jerusalem and brought reports about him? Don't you know they went home to their friends and neighbors and said, Listen, there is a man who is healing by the power of God. 
He is stronger than Satan, and no one ever taught like he teaches. Mark has also mentioned Jerusalem in chapter 3, verse 22. We read there, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Interesting, Jerusalem is in the south, but it's elevated on a mountain. So wherever you go from Jerusalem, you always go down from Jerusalem. Wherever you come from Jerusalem, wherever you come from in your approach to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem in the parlance of the Bible. Anyways, we see that some of the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So speak the scribes from Jerusalem about Jesus. And then again in chapter 7, we read that some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem dispute with Jesus about cleanliness laws. Don't you know that these scribes from Jerusalem are a delegation and that they bring back reports about Jesus? Listen, this Jesus character... He doesn't follow our traditions. He is not to be trusted. He is an outsider disruptor. John's gospel even points out to us that Jesus has spent time in Jerusalem prior to this. Mark doesn't contradict John, but this is the first voyage into Jerusalem that Mark records because Mark wants to draw our attention to this visit to Jerusalem, especially There's something unique about this time that Jesus draws near riding on a donkey. You may remember as we've studied through Mark that in the past, Jesus has at at times constrained others from speaking about his identity. Remember when Peter says, you are the Christ. The next verse says, and he immediately charged them not to tell anyone about him. But now, here in chapter 11... Through his donkey ride and the shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. It's like Jesus throws up a billboard outside Jerusalem. Hey, the Christ is here. The promised king, the son of David is coming. For a time, Jesus had wanted his disciples not to proclaim that he was the Christ, but now the message is pretty loud and pretty clear. Aware of all that it implies, Jesus rides a donkey to the tune of Hosanna to signal that the king has come. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is not only fulfilling God's prophesied plans, Jesus is asserting his kingship to the capital city. Knock, knock, Jerusalem. It's the king. What will you do? What do you say? When I arrived at Buckingham Palace as a tourist, I received a non-response from the palace. And it was, as I expected, because I'm not the king. Here in our passage, although it is subtle, we see the beginning of Jerusalem's stunning, tragic, non-response to King Jesus. A non-response that becomes antipathy and murder. Murder. 
I want to show you something from the responsive reading that we read earlier in the service. Again, grab your bulletins and look back at Psalm 118. Remember, we said that this psalm appears to, be, to have been sung responsively by multiple parties, right? We had two parties. Brent stood in for the king, and we were sort of filling in all the other parts. Uh, but it seems like there are uh, more than just two parts to this original psalm. So look there in verse 2. It says, let Israel say, so the people are going to say this line, his steadfast love endures forever. Look there at verse 3. It says, let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Who's the house of Aaron? The house of Aaron are the priests in the temple. They have a role in celebrating the king's arrival Turn over to verse 26 of the responsive reading. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Who's speaking in that line? Someone in the temple, presumably the house of Aaron. The priests are to welcome the king in. What happens in Mark's gospel after Jesus rides into Jerusalem to the tune of Hosanna and he comes to the temple? Does anyone come out from the temple to bless the king in the name of the Lord? Do any of the priests show up and receive their king? Do, how did the sons of Aaron respond in Jesus' arrival? There's a non-response. A telling non-response, a damning non-response. So there in verse 11, Jesus enters the city. He goes into the temple. He takes a good look around and he leaves. And thus begins the unfolding tragedy of the king's rejection. Let me close with this. Have you ever witnessed a public proposal of marriage. If you have, you'll know, particularly if you don't know the couple, you'll know that that is a pressurized moment. The man on his knee has made himself exceedingly vulnerable. That is a moment that leads either to immense joy or to devastation. It's a moment that demands a response. Friends, listen, the message of Jesus, it might not come to you with all the suddenness of Jesus' donkey ride into Jerusalem. It might not come with all the surprise of a sudden wedding proposal. But Jesus' offer of himself to you as king and as savior is even more momentous than a proposal. It is not something to which we should fail to respond. As proof of his love, this king points not to a ring, but to the shedding of his own blood for sinners on the cross. As proof of his kingship, Jesus points to his resurrection, something only God could do. And friends, listen, the love 
and the authority of Jesus when he comes to us in his gospel, offering to save and claiming to be king. It demands a response. Jesus' offer of himself invites us to respond with faith, with love, as we trust him to save To save us not just from the Romans, not just from all our problems now, but for all of eternity, from sin and death and hell into the eternal kingdom of our God. Uh, Jesus' offer of himself invites us to trust him for that. It invites us to submit every part of our lives to his royal authority. Saints, we are invited by our text this morning to respond with joy to our King's gift of himself to his people. Let's pray that God would help us to respond to this King with joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. Lord, you uphold the world by your mighty power. And even as you walked to Jerusalem, you sustained all things. Jesus, you were not out of control when you were crucified for us. So we worship you. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the prophesied king, that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in you. Lord, that you will fulfill not our every wish, but God's perfect plans. We thank you that that's such good news for us. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to respond to Jesus with humble faith, with gratitude, with joy, with glad submission, uh, with worship. Would you help us to do so now as we come to the Lord's table? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.